Let's have, a, let's have a prayer and we will begin. Dear Father, we're grateful for this day. We know every day is your gift. Moment by moment is your gift. We acknowledge that it's in you that we live and move and have our being. And because of that, we know you hear us. We're thankful you've asked us and opened a way for us to pray to you through your Son. We're thankful for the work that he has done for us, not only at the cross, but in the resurrection, and now mediating and carrying our request to you. We're grateful for that. Father, each of us knows, most likely knows someone who's hurting this morning, whether it be physically or emotionally or spiritually, and uh, those names are with us. And as we think of them, we ask for your blessing and your working in their lives, and we pray for open hearts to receive your working. Pray for your help today and blessing in this lesson in our study together. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're, uh, we're in Romans 7 this morning. Um, I'll say this again, uh, uh, sorry if it's too much repetition, but Paul is, Paul is really working with, uh, especially with his Jewish audience uh, in Rome in this particular letter, um, because old ways do not pass easily. Old traditions and old beliefs don't pass easily, and uh, while the Jews had the law for centuries as a way to uh, follow what God wanted them to be, uh, they failed to keep it. It's not keepable, actually, as it turns out, a law of works. In Deuteronomy 26 and 27, the, uh, the people of Israel are told that they're expected to do all things that are in the law. And then that's repeated in Galatians 3 in chapter Three and verse 10, cursed is everyone who is under the law if they don't do everything in it and keep it. It's the law of works. And that, that statement in Galatians 3.10, that's, that's a pretty heavy statement. There's no way around that and there's no relief in that statement. So that, uh, however, the Jewish population is still holding to those traditions. They still don't want to give it up. Jesus is new. That's a new thing. And so they're not sure where to, where to put him. And, uh, of course, he did many, 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 and the Scripture tells us many things that are not even recorded here in the Scripture to cause belief, to prove that he was from God, that he was speaking for God, not only the miracles, but the fulfillment of prophecy after prophecy in his life. To try to help the Jews understand that he is the Messiah that was prophesied about. So anyway, Paul spends a lot of time with that issue and with that audience trying to help them understand uh, what the law is about and now the Messiah and the new covenant. Um, to speak of how strong the, the nature of Judaism was in that population 
Paul recounts how when Peter was in Antioch, this is Galatians chapter 2, 11, 12, and 13. When Peter was in Antioch, he ate with the Gentiles. He fellowshiped and ate with the Gentiles just like they were normal people. Of course, Peter had had an experience with Cornelius where God told him three times, I've made this the sheet of all these foods. He says, take a bite. And Peter says, no, that's unclean. And three times that's repeated. And God says, what I have made clean, don't you call unclean. And then the knock at the door comes and it's a Gentile. So Peter learns through all that experience that God is accepting the Gentiles. So when he comes to Antioch, he's fellowshipping with the Gentiles. But then Galatians 2 tells us that when some of the Gentiles, from, some of the Jews from Jerusalem came up to Antioch to visit Peter there, that Peter withdrew from the Gentiles. And Paul called him out. He says, you're being a hypocrite. When the Jews are not here, you're fellowshipping with the Gentiles. When the Jews come up here, you quit fellowshipping with them. Um, and the scripture says in uh, Galatians 2, about verse 12 and 13, that the reason he pulled back from the Gentiles there, Peter did, was because of the fear of the Jews. He was afraid of the repercussions that might come. So all that to say, there is a lot of... Uh, the power of tradition, of centuries of tradition, and just the whole Judaism theology as it moved into Christianity and tried to blend with it. And of course, the book of Galatians is written about that. He says you're requiring Gentiles to be circumcised because of your Jewish tradition. That's gone. And Paul is really very blunt about that. So anyway, all that to say there's a big influence uh, um, of Judaism in the church in the early days. And Paul writes to combat that. Uh, so he brings the illustration to marriage. And so and we just uh, had started chapter 7 last week, but he, he uses the marriage illustration. And he, and he starts off by saying, first of all, when someone dies, they're no longer responsible to the law. How many people do you know who have died uh, that are expected to obey the laws of the land. No, they're not. They're not under that obligation anymore. And he goes into the marriage illustration. And he says, when a wife's husband dies, she's no longer bound to that husband. She's free to remarry to another one. And so he brings that into religion and the law. And in verse 7, verse 4 of chapter 7, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, who the one who is raised from the dead. And of course, the Ephesian letter talks about the church being the bride of Christ, married to another, married to Jesus. And notice that he says in that, in uh, chapter 7, verse 4, you've died to the law through the body of Christ, through Christ. He just got through the page before that talking about how they were baptized into Christ. In Romans 6, verse 6, you died with Christ when you were crucified with him. So you died with Christ when you were crucified with him by baptism. And you're raised new. Well, 
he brings, he comes back to that here when he says you've died to the law through the body of Christ. When you came into Christ, you died to the law. So he's telling them you're not, we are not subject to the law as a means for justification anymore. That covenant is gone. It's been removed and we're under a new covenant now, covenant uh, that Jesus brought. Um, so that's about where we got to last week. Um, verse 6, chapter 7, verse 6. We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. The written code being the law of Moses. We're not under that anymore. And so then he says, so what shall we say? That the law is sin? He says, no, it's not sin, by no means. If it had not been for the law, I would have not have known about sin. So the law served to point out what sin was and to convict people of sin. That happened under the law. The problem with the law was there was no way to gain forgiveness. Once you had broken the law, James says, you break one, one part of the law, you're guilty of all of it. What does that mean? You've sinned. You've broken the law. And so you're just as guilty if you break one as of breaking all of them. Because why? Because there's no remedy for sin under the law. There's no way for forgiveness under the law. They didn't have it. They would offer animal sacrifices every year. They knew the animal was dying because of their sin. But the Hebrew writer later says, but we all know that the blood of bulls and goats cannot remove sin. You offer these sacrifices to teach you that sin brings death and sin causes the death of the innocent. But the blood of bulls and goats cannot remove sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God, John the Baptist said, John 1, 29. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is God's sacrifice for us. And he paid our sin debt. So, um, okay. Pardon me while I turn my page and my notes as smoothly as I know how. And let me find where I am. Okay, this is an interesting statement he makes in verse 9. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Notice what he says. I once was alive apart from the law. Babies, toddlers, children. Alive. <clears throat> alive in what respect? Alive to God. Alive before God. No sin. Alive. When it's spoken about in Scripture spiritually, being alive or being dead is talking about the relationship with God. Being uh, Here's the deal with alive and, and dead. Uh, Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 59, sin separates a person from God. That's what separates us from God, sin. A person separated from God is dead. If, you're, if a person separated from God, they're dead. If a person is alive, they have a relationship with God. So Paul says in Romans 7 verse 9 I once was alive 
apart from the law. Babies are innocent. They're not born in sin. There's, there's teaching in religion, in some areas of religion today, why are infants baptized? Because they're born in sin. No, they're not. They're innocent. Sin is lawlessness, 1 John 3 and 4. Sin is transgressing the law. The baby, the two-year-old, the three-year-old, the toddler, the first grader, and so on, they don't know about right and wrong. Now, they learn fairly quickly, if I do something mama tells me not to do, I may get a swat with the spoon. In our day, when we were raising the, the boys, it was the spoon. The dreaded 13-inch wooden spoon. You do that, I'm going to get the spoon. They didn't know that that was right or wrong necessarily, but they knew if they did something, that meant they could get the spoon. And that's a dreadful thing. Did you use the spoon, Mike? Once? I used it more than once. Of course, I'm older than you. When, notice what he says in the next phrase, but when the commandment came, now the commandments were always there. They've been there for centuries. So what does he mean here? He meant when he got a certain age and he understood the commandments and what the law said, he's talking about he reached an age where he went from being innocent about right and wrong to an age where he understood the commandments. So he says, when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. I broke the commandments and I died. So, there's a, so, so babies are innocent. A baby can't believe the gospel. A, a baby, they got, you got to have time. Now, we're born weak. Our humanity, we have a, we, I believe, in my opinion, we have a, an inherited weakness and vulnerabilities to sin as we age. I think that comes with being a human. There's a weakness there, but we, we're not born with guilt. We don't know the commandment. We don't break the commandments. We're innocent. And Paul said at one time in his life, he was alive. But when he came to understand the commandments, he died. He understood right from wrong. Uh, so the very commandment, verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death. So the commandment said, if you do all these things and keep these laws, you'll live. You'll be sinless. You'll live. You'll be alive with God. But when the commandment came, I, I realized what sin was and I started breaking commands. Then sin came alive and he died. Sir, what commandment are we talking about, Jeff says. Anybody have an answer? I think Jeff does or he wouldn't have asked it. Go ahead. Yeah. I think, yes. Uh, however, in the context of this passage, notice 
what, the way he starts off, Jeff says, what commandments he talking about? In general, I think he's talking about the law of Moses, and here's why. But I think he's also talking about the law of God, the law that's written on our hearts. I think that's there too. But in context, Romans 7, verse 1, brothers, I'm speaking to those who know the law. He's talking to his Jewish audience. And he's, he's, he's spent chapter 4 and uh, 5 talking about the law passing away and the new covenant coming, and he's going back to this same topic here in chapter 7 to the Jews, those who know the law. He's trying to convince them, don't try to keep keeping the law of Moses. We're under a new covenant now. We're under the law of faith through Jesus. I think he's primarily talking about the Ten Commandments, but the law written on our hearts would certainly, I believe, apply too. Um, so he says, for sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceive me and through it, kill me. So is the law holy? The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good, verse 13, bring death to me? No, it was sin that produced death in me through what is good in order that sin should be shown to be what it is. So sin used the law of God, the commandments of God, to kill people. Sin used the, what was good, keep these laws, but the enemy knows we're not flawless, and when we break the laws, that separates us from God, and, and we're in a bind. Sin used what was good to kill us. And through the law, through the old way of keeping, keeping the laws of God or you die, and we started out Romans talking about what was the law about. Is a, it's something that I wish I could remember the way I defined it, but anyway, it, it, it caused, it, it told us how to live, but it had no provision for forgiveness, the law of Moses. The law of Christ tells us how to live and it has provision for forgiveness through Jesus. So there's a huge difference between the two. He goes into now from 14 through the end of the chapter, a big discussion, and we all know it very well in each of our lives, a big discussion of 14 through the end of the chapter. I know what to do, what is good that I should do, but I don't do what is good. I do what's bad. Why do I keep making mistakes and doing what's bad? I'm in a, I'm in a mess. And I'm sure every one of us has been frustrated with himself or herself because of our continued inconsistencies in life, our continued stumblings. I know to do good, but I do bad. Over and over again. I knew better than that. I shouldn't have done that. I knew better than that. Why did I do that? And Paul gets into the discussion there. He says, it wasn't your mind, the, the, the spirit of you that was wanting to please God, but it was sin in your flesh, working in your flesh to kill you. Now, four, at least four schools of thought about this section of Romans seven fourteen through the end of the chapter. Four schools of thought. Pick the one you want. Um, I'll mention them. I have one I think it is, but I, I think it, it doesn't matter that much which one you think it is. One school of thought, as Paul goes through this section here of doing what he knows better than doing and shouldn't do, 
One school of thought is that he's referring to his life as a Jew before he became a Christian. I made all these mistakes. Uh, maybe he is, but I tend to not think so. I mean, he certainly did make mistakes as a Jew. I don't think he's writing about himself in that particular regard. He may be. But he talks about in Philippians how he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, how he was a Pharisee. He had attained high standings in the way of the Pharisees, and he basically was without fault in keeping the law. So he was one of the really, really conscientious good ones. Now, he wasn't perfect, but he... He did as close as you could get to it. So that description he makes of himself seems to me to contradict the description that he's talking about here in the second half of, the, of chapter 7. That doesn't seem to be the Paul that's described in Philippians uh, 3, um, about 3, 4, and 5 in there, 5 and 6. Some think he's talking about his life as a Christian. Well, we all know as Christians, we still do things we know better than doing. Is Paul talking about himself there? I mean, there's some application there. But I don't really think he's talking about himself in this description because he has a lot of statements to me that seem contrary. He will say we are more than conquerors in, in, uh, through Jesus. He will say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He will tell the Corinthians, imitate me as I follow Christ. So Paul is living a victorious life in Christ and doesn't seem to be continually, uh, chronically stumbling in sin uh, throughout his life. Not saying he's sinless. But I'm saying the description here to me in the second half of chapter 7 doesn't seem to fit his comments about his own life. Another school of thought is that Paul uses I in this section as a literary device to connect and relate to his audience. All Gentiles who are under the law of works and who do not have the help of the Spirit to help them through the temptations they have. They know they should live a certain way, but they keep living a different way. They keep doing things they shouldn't do. Certainly a lot of application there. Maybe he's talking about Gent, but he's not talking in this letter, this part of the letter, to a Gentile audience. He's talking to the Jews, so that brings us to the fourth school of thought on this. Again, that Paul is using the literary device I to connect to his audience of Jews who are under the law of Moses or who have been under the law of Moses and keep trying to live by it and they can't do it. They keep failing. It seems to me it's one of the, either the third or the fourth idea about who Paul is talking to. I think he's saying I to connect to his audience as they read the letter. I want to do this, but I do that. And they can relate to that. Uh, whichever one you think it is, I think we can all relate to it at some level. We've all stumbled and done things we knew better than doing. And why do we do that? Because there is a presence of sin in our flesh that we have to contend with. There is a presence we have to contend with. Go with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. 
And um, he talks about this, and it's kind of scary, actually, uh, although there's a good message in it. Ephesians chapter 2, writing to the church in Ephesus, verse 1 through about verse 5. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Ooh. There is a presence in our world that we do not see directly. We see the results of, his, of its activity. The prince of the power of the air that is at work in the sons of disobedience. There's an influence ever-present that would push us to make bad decisions. For what purpose? To kill us. To separate us from God. He goes on. Among whom, verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I read that and I think, wow, what a description of the United States of America and the republic for which it stands. One nation not under God. Divisible. Wrathful. If you dare watch the news on any day or read the paper on any day, it is shocking the things that are going on. It, can you believe that school board after school board after school board in ad infinitum okays pornographic material for elementary and junior high kids? But when a parent comes to protest that in their school, they won't let them even read the book that's in the school because it's not good language for a mixed audience. How crazy is this? It's the spirit of the power of the air at work in the sons of disobedience. That's what it is. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Whew. Thank you. Mm. So that's a struggle that goes on in the flesh. Verse 21 there um, of chapter 7, he says, I find that there's a law at work. Evil or sin is always close at hand. Verse 21, a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. You know, after Abel killed after Cain killed Abel, 
God comes to him and says, Abel, uh, Cain, where's your brother? Uh, somewhere. I don't keep up with him. Well, before he killed him, I got ahead of myself. Or did I get behind myself, one way or the other? God warned Cain before he killed Abel. He said, Abel, uh, Cain was upset with Abel's sacrifice pleasing God. And he says, Cain, now you need to be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. You're having thoughts. It's right there at your door. He says, you need to rule over it. Rule over it. Genesis chapter 4. Well, Cain did not rule over it. And he killed his brother. Sin is always present, close at hand. So Jesus, talking to his disciples in Luke 9 and 23 and 24, he says, if anyone will come after me, take up your cross daily, daily, daily. Why daily? Because sin is always close at hand. Consciously, intentionally take up your cross, die to yourself, take up your cross, intentionally take up your cross and follow me. He says daily. Skip has a, we have coffee every week and he has a a book that he reads every morning, 50 Reasons Why Christ Went to the Cross. He reads it every morning. Daily. Follow me as a reminder of what's important that day and every day. Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he talks about have a prayerful attitude all the time. Have a prayerful attitude all the time. Why? Because sin is at the door. Sin is close at hand, at the door, wanting to trip us up and kill us. Well, I didn't pray today. I just didn't have time. What? Didn't have time? You have time to breathe? You have time to pray? Find a way to make the time. Because we need the prayer as much as we need the breath. Because we have a challenge waiting every day to cause us to fall. We're in a war. Paul talks about the war in Ephesians 6. You're in a war. Put on your armor so so you can stand. If you don't understand you're in a war, you're going to be ambushed, is the message to the Ephesians. Verse 22 of chapter 7. I delight in the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, another law, wages war against me and makes me captive to the law of sin. And he says, verse 24, what a wretched, miserable person I am. I think that describes how he was and how the Jewish audience is that was trying to keep the law. But it really relates to all of us again at some level, doesn't it? Who will deliver me from this body of death? We are hopeless and helpless on our own. Hopeless and... Who was that? Olivia Newton-John? Hopelessly devoted. I mean, why did that song pop in my head? But uh, we're hopeless 
without God's help. So Romans chapter 5 says, While you were helpless and sinners, God sent his son to die for you. You were helpless and hopeless. God showed his love for us in that Christ died for us. Romans 5, 6, and 8. So he says, verse 25, who will deliver me? He said, thank you, God. God delivers me through Jesus. Because I cannot deliver myself. God does it. He stepped into time, in the fullness of time, Scripture says. And Jesus came to be the payment of, for sin. All right, so we get to chapter 8, and we're switching gears totally in chapter 8. Chapter 7 is a downer if there ever was one until you get to the last verse when he talks about the struggle with sin. You know, uh, chapter 5, he says, we're free from God's wrath. We're free from God's wrath by the love of God. Chapter 5, 6, and 8. It says in chapter 6, we're free from sin by baptism, by being baptized into Christ to destroy the body of sin. Romans 6, verse 6. Destroy the body. So free, free from wrath, free from sin. In chapter 7, we're free from the law by the body of Christ. In chapter 8, we're going to be free from death by the Spirit of God. Free from wrath, free from sin free from the law, free from death. All of that God does through the love of God, by baptism into Christ, by uh, the body of Christ, and by the work of the Spirit. So chapter 8, it's kind of a high mark, high water mark in the New Testament, Romans 8. There are certain chapters that we, that we, just, that we know, that we go to. Romans 8 is one of those, like, Roman, like 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Romans 8 is the, the life chapter. Security in Christ, in the Spirit. Safety in the Spirit, and that's Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. Therefore, referring back to what he's just covered. In chapter 7, uh, let me see, verse 4, brothers, you've died to the law, you belong to another. So the law is no longer over us. We belong to another. We belong to Jesus. And then verse 25 of chapter 7, the Christ is our answer. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise God. Thanks to God through Christ. Therefore, he says, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ is righteous. And there is no sin in Christ. And if we are in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation for us. It goes with being in Christ. We are baptized, Romans 6, into Christ's death and buried with him by baptism into death that like as he was raised, we also would be raised new. In Christ, there's no condemnation. So if we are in Christ, he says, no condemnation, guys and ladies. Wow. Why is that? Verse 2. 
For because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Free. All of mankind from the garden forward under the law of sin and death, the law of works that says if you sin one time, the legal penalty is death. No bail, no time off for good behavior, death. All your good deeds cannot erase your sin, death. The law of works, all of mankind was under that from the beginning of time until Jesus came. Then at that time, those who were faithful to God by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, those who were faithful to God before he came, were saved by their faithfulness to God because of his payment. Not because of animal sacrifice, but because of his payment. And we are saved the same way, because of his payment. We have peace with God through Jesus, Romans 5.1. Peace. Peace. Why peace? Because we're not in rebellion. Because we're not under the law of sin and death. We're under grace. We're in Christ. We're forgiven. He has covered us. And it's not our righteousness. It's his righteousness. When we are baptized into his death, again, Romans 6, 3 through 6, when we are baptized into his death, we are baptized into his righteousness. He gives us his righteousness. It's not our goodness. It's not our good deeds. It's his. We move into his righteousness. And so there's no condemnation. It's, it's too good to believe but the Bible says, believe it. That's why I went to all the trouble. I know you're frailed. I know you're inconsistent. I know you can't make it on your own. So in the fullness of time, I came into time to save you. Because I made you. And I have plans for you. What do you want from us, God? I want you to believe I want you to believe in me and believe what I've done and commit to me and I have great things planned for you. Whew. That's at the point where we make the three-point shot at the buzzer where everybody jumps up and screams. Yesterday, Arkansas missed their three-point shot at the buzzer against number two, Alabama. Got beat 86 to 83. We also missed 19 free throws. Add about 19 points to that three-point defeat and see what you get. You get a big victory. That's got nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Don listening to this, I'm sorry, I digressed.
But it's where we would jump up and scream and, and yell and applaud and cry when we realize what God has done for us at the cross. Man, by putting us, because of our trust and faith in him, by putting us into Jesus where there's no condemnation. Mm. So Romans 4 verse 8, we went over that a few weeks ago. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count sin. Doesn't count it. We're still frail. We're still inconsistent. He doesn't count it. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of his son cleanses you from all sin. Pam was talking to me about that passage this week. She said, you're leaving off something very important there. She's right. Because it's easy to focus on that part, but he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin and we have fellowship with one another. God intends us to be in fellowship. He intends the church to be community. We are not saved to isolate ourselves. That's one problem I have with, can we be honest? I'm going to be honest. You ready for this, Brad? I'm getting ready to be honest. Brad says go. I have a little bit of a problem with stream services. Now, two things I'm going to say. I think streaming services is great for shut-ins. It is a great way to bless people where they can have some form of connection and fellowship. It's a good thing. The other side of the coin is it's a lazy way to do church if you're not a shut-in. I'm going to flick on the screen there, catch about 40 minutes of church, and then go on about my business. And we miss the fellowship. He also he says, you are forgiven of your sins continually. You have fellowship with one another, breaking of bread and prayer. And he mentions fellowship as second in that list, ahead of breaking bread and ahead of prayer, fellowship. God intends us to have community. His design is not to have me Walk with God on my own. How many times have you heard that? I'm not into organized religion. It's full of hypocrites. I'm just walking with God on my own. No, you're really not. Because God intends fellowship of the believers. He put it in his Bible. He put it in his Bible. What I wish... I wish we streamed our services at 2 o'clock instead of on the time it happened. That way the shut-ins could still have the service and they love it and it's a blessing to them. But for the folks that want to do casual pajama church and just not bother to come have fellowship, maybe they would if they had, if their option was, well, at 2 o'clock... I don't want to mess up my afternoon. Mess up my afternoon. Maybe they go ahead and come back to church. 
church. Have a delayed, have a delayed broadcast. Post it at two o'clock. It's the challenge of every eldership and every preacher. What can I do or say to cause the people to learn to love each other and want to have fellowship and grow together? Mike. I think that's what we want to be doing in heaven, and that's why I want us to do it here. Mike says that's what we're going to do. One, one big part of heaven is our fellowship, and so let's start doing it here. That's why we should do it here. <clears throat> God knows I am weak, and you are weak, and we encourage each other. He knows if I see Eric slipping up in an area, I'm going to call him out. Eric knows that too. And Eric will say something to me. We need accountability. We need each other. We need to be, see, you thought you were going to get by this week. I got him, Jason. We need each other. We need accountability. So as you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. I ran out of time somehow. I don't know how it happened. I cannot explain it. But we're done for this week. Lord willing, let's try to resume next week. God bless. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.